You're listening to The Commons Podcast. For more information on events, serving opportunities, financial giving, and community groups, visit flagstaffcommons.com. We like to pray for other churches in town. That's really important to us. Uh, We love it because we think that the body of Christ is this really big, beautiful mosaic around the world and in this town with all sorts of different different diverse beliefs, but kind of a lot in common. And so today we're going to pray for uh, a church that's a dear friend of ours, Trinity Heights United Methodist Church who uh, they've been around town for a long time. And Lynn is the pastor over there. Her husband, Ron, is also kind of a part-time pastor. He does some stuff with the United Methodist Conference. But if you're the praying type, we're going to pray for all of our family that meets over at Trinity Heights. Uh, Let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, this town that we live in. Thank you so much, Lord, for the things that we often take for granted, the freedom to meet openly and to celebrate our diverse faiths and our connection to each other. And Lord, we love Trinity Heights. I'm thankful for their years of being your hands and feet to this community. Thank you for the times that we've got to stand side by side with them uh, in serving the least of these in this community. Thank you for Lynn and her leadership and her heart and also for Ron and all that he does. We just pray for all those that gather there, Lord. Uh, Let them know that they are dearly loved uh, by us. And we pray always the same prayer. Let us all draw closer to each other as we're trying to draw close to you. And we also pray, as always, Lord, as today we open up the Gospel of John, would you open up our minds and our eyes and ears in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a little bit windy in Flagstaff this weekend. I was I was actually sitting up on our, our new office has a balcony overlooking kind of that little strip where Flag Brewery is and Aloha Barbecue. And I, I was reading, getting ready for hanging out with you guys tonight. And I set my glasses down for a second. And the wind actually blew my glasses off our second store balcony into the downtown alleyway. But they're not scratched at all, which is really, really cool. So super windy, not into that. But uh, well, well, maybe if I'm lucky, I'll circle, circle back around to the, the wind in some deeper metaphorical way. But I'm going to first do something I've done really well not doing so far this year. I'm going to talk to you about football. And I've done really well, and I'm super proud of myself. It's been football season for almost a month, and I've made very few references. I'm in three fantasy football leagues, and, and it's a low year. I usually am more than that. And uh, in those three leagues, I've now played four games, so 12 games, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be 1-11 in, in those 12 games. And so I'm not in a real good psychological space to even be up here trying to open the scriptures. I'm a little decentered, and my Rams got beat in a heartbreaker and lost their undefeated season. So whatever comes out today, deal with it. But just know there's some emotional trauma underneath it that's kind of affecting it. But the other football thing I wanted to tell you about, I was so thankful last week that Holland was here, and she shared. Most of you may know if you've been coming. If not, we're in the middle of this gospel series or discussion, and and we've done the three first gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I was gone last week, and I think Holland did a great job. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I heard people say she did a great job looking at Luke because I took my kids down to see the Arizona Cardinals play the Carolina Panthers because that's so much more important than church. 
And uh, I was glad I did because my oldest daughter is a huge Carolina Panther fan, Aspen, and has been her whole life. And so this was kind of an early birthday present for her. And it was really cool because when I was a kid, I, I lived up in the panhandle of Texas. And I remember my parents woke me up one December. My birthday's in December. And they woke me up at like 2 in the morning. And I didn't know what was going on. I was kind of spacing it. And they were surprising me with a birthday gift. And they drove us all the way to Dallas, Texas, which was like a seven-hour drive back then. And we watched my Los Angeles. Rams play the Dallas Cowboys in the Cowboys Stadium. I'd never been to an NFL game before, and it was this really cool gift. But I remember as a kid being there, the emotional stress that I was feeling. I thought the Rams were going to lose at the end of the game, and I started crying in my seat because I could picture my best friend mocking me when I got home. And they ended up miraculously winning at the end, so then I felt like an idiot. But it was so cool taking my kids and then watching Aspen have those same emotions. It was like looking into your past, which is kind of one of the cool things about being a parent. I mean, I don't know why she's a Carolina Panthers fan, but she is, and she loves them with her whole soul. And they were up, and it was a close game going to the fourth quarter, and she was so stressed out. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this was me when I was a kid. This is so fun. It's like the circle of life, Lion King. It's all tied together, right? What I was actually thinking that was interesting is when I was leaving the stadium, I was looking, I was amazed at the, the sales of NFL jerseys. You know, all the Cardinals fans, there was tons of Panthers fans. And I was thinking, you know, in some weird world that I grew up in, football is like this cool thing and other things aren't cool. I know that's not how the world is anymore. But I did think, like, this really isn't that different, leaving Cardinal Stadium, than, like, leaving some Comic-Con nerd thing where everyone's dressed up as, like, their favorite Marvel character or, or going to, like, a Star Wars thing. There's just this thing about humans where we like to dress up and go pretend because, really, football is all fake. I hate to break it to you or me who loves it so much, but it's all just this pretend thing. But something about us it gets attached to these things. We put on colorful jerseys or we put on our superhero stuff or I don't know what nerdy thing you're into, but Harry Potter grand opening, I may or may not have dressed up for one of those, none of your business. But we have these, like... We have these things that we connect to, right? And it was just a different perspective. And perspective is going to be a huge focal point of what I want to talk about today as we look at the Gospel of John. I was even thinking about when we were trying to get the tickets to take our whole family down there. It was amazing to me the different pricing of tickets when you buy tickets in a stadium. Because you can get really cheap tickets, like $12 up in the upper decks where you're in the high part of the stadium or in the end zones where we were. But if you want to be in an NFL game on the 50-yard line, where you can see everything, or right there in like the fancy box seats, you're paying hundreds of dollars per ticket. I think that's so weird. It's so funny how your perspective on the game has a very different value. Like we actually pay more money to have a different perspective. Now, one of the things I find ironic about that is in some ways, especially in the world of giant jumbotrons, the best perspective of the game is the cheap seats up high, where you're up high looking down, but you have this huge screen showing you the place. So you're kind of like a coach in the press box that can see the chess match. And I'm saying all this because I think that the Gospel of John is very, very unique and different than the other Gospels in that one word. It's perspective on Jesus. Now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're looking at three synoptic gospels. That's what scholars call it. Synoptic is sin, and optic means one eye. And the reason scholars, it's a Latin phrase, the reason they call them synoptic is that it's, it's like all three of those gospels have, have one eye in the way they talk about Jesus. They almost certainly shared materials, possibly a Q source, other material that they use as they wrote down the stories of Jesus' life. And they share content, but they have their own unique content, and they're in dialogue with one another. And, and a lot of scholars say that the synoptic gospels are, are like a horizontal look at Jesus, 
But John is like a vertical look at Jesus. And what they mean by that is John has a completely different writing style. He tells completely different stories. He has a completely different linguistic style. And all of his overall perspective is deeply theological. Now, since the earliest church, in fact, in the second century, there was a guy named Clement of Alexandria. He's one of the earliest church scholars, and he noticed even then that this gospel, among the others, seemed to have this transcendent, deep theological perspective on the life of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to tell you right up front, and I'm sure many of you, if you grew up in, in the church or have a shared religious tradition that I do, many of you probably will resonate with this. John is my favorite gospel. Um, there's lots of reasons for that, and it's actually kind of evolved over the years why I've liked it in, in, at different times. And I'm kind of glad that in the order that we have our gospels today, we get to end on John, because John is, is personally significant to me. It's a text that I love to talk about because it's a text that has transformed me since I was going to Rams game as a little kid to I hope till I die, just the, the deep well that John is. In fact, scholars often say, I've heard this phrase used by many different religious theological authors, that John is, is like a pool of water that children can paddle in and elephants can swim in. It's often in the world that I grew up in, when, when people maybe first come to faith, it might be the first thing you're instructed to read. You should start by reading the Gospel of John. That was kind of common knowledge where I grew up. And I think that's good because I think it does have this sort of strange paradox to it that in one sense it is the simplest gospel and look at Jesus because the language John uses as an author actually is really simple. He uses repetitive words and phrases like light and light, life and light, and he, he uses dualistic things like light and darkness and life and death and belief and unbelief and knowing and unknowing and blindness and seeing. He has these literary tools that, that draw in the reader. It's an, it's an easy read, but it's also extremely deep read, and that's what I want to kind of wet your whistle with today, perhaps. One of the whole goals of this series is each of these weeks to just hopefully inspire you on your own to go read these works, because we're talking about an entire book, and this is falling on the heels of our Summer Book Club series. You can't sum up a book in 20 or 30 minutes. All we can do is get to the tip of the iceberg and hopefully get your interest peaked that this might be an ancient text that's worth wrestling with a little bit. Now, I'm going to kind of go through a little bit of why I like John, just kind of vomiting verbally some of the things chronologically through John, but then I just want to camp on two passages in John that I hope will resonate or start some discussion or, or something that will be worth our time together as we open the scriptures. John, to me, is so beautiful from the very beginning. Now, I, I want to, before we dive into it, there's a couple things I want to do. I want to talk about this thing over here, and I want to talk about kind of our overarching um, theme that we've been using for the Gospels. We've been talking about the idea that each gospel is a little bit like a stained glass window in the sense that the creator, the artist who makes a stained glass window, especially if you remember when we met over at the beautiful church nativity, those, those beautiful stained glass windows, they, they had an image of something on them, usually a story from the gospels, and they're filled with all these colorful images and the light comes through them. But the analogy we've been using is that each of these gospel authors is like one of these artists and they've given their own unique stained glass window 
that we can look through to see who Jesus really was, the centerpiece and kind of the anchor of what all of our faith language is about, the person of Jesus. And so what we have here is what's going to evolve into a stained glass window. Later when we share communion at the end, we're going to have all you kids that are in here. We love this one uh, every few times a year where we get to have the kids in here. While we take communion, parents, your kids can come up here, and we're just going to have them color across this. We'll put it down because we know they're not all six feet tall. And they can just color across this thing, and then we're going to strip the, uh, take the tape off, and it'll leave an image of kind of a, a childlike stained glass window, which is something we think is a really cool nod to John's gospel, which has the simplicity of the faith like a child, but the depth of the art of a stained glass window. Now, in the imagery that we've used, the, in the past, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we looked at these images from the early church that Matthew was always represented as this human faith, and, and Mark was always represented by this roaring lion. And last week, Holland told you about Luke, the ox, and the social gospel of Luke. But John is always pictured with one thing. And, and did you, were you able to get that, Brian, that picture? Yeah. Oh, look at that high-res picture. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I, I forgot to tell him, and I told him to Google it late, so that's my fault. But that right there is not a turkey. That is an eagle, and that's from the Book of Kells in the 8th century. And all throughout history, people have used the icon or the image of the eagle for the book of John because John uniquely has the perspective of an eagle. He sees from 30,000 feet the significance philosophically, theologically of the life of Christ. And when you open up John 1, 1, it hits the ground running. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And that word is logos in the Greek. And it's almost like from the very beginning, he tells you the whole thesis of his gospel, and it is this. If you think about it as the eagle, if you guys remember when the, the lunar module landed on the moon, they had nicknamed that the eagle, and the first word that came back to Houston was the eagle has landed. And one of the things about the gospel of John is that it is a direct nuclear explosion into the Greek philosophical world that there is an above and a below, a divine separate and a human profane. And the whole point is the divine, the eagle has landed. In the beginning, the word became flesh. And so simultaneously, he uses the language of Genesis to his Jewish audiences. He used the Greek word logos to his Greek audiences because his community in the first century would have been from both of those cultures. And he was saying from the very beginning, there's no longer this giant spiritual good, physical bad. It's all the eagle has landed. God is tangible, and the gospel of John is about embodiment, about the divine in a body. And in John 1, he tells us that the, the word became flesh. It put flesh on. It moved among us. In fact, the, the language there is that it tabernacled among us, and the Jewish listeners would have resonated because they would think of all of their festivals and how they set up tabernacles to be a picture of the place where God resides. And he's saying God came and resided with us, and the light shone. The darkness couldn't handle it. And he starts to introduce these themes that Jesus vertically is so much bigger and deeper and transcendent and theological than you could have ever imagined. It's one of the things that makes John so captivating. If, if you reflect back to Mark, Mark was the mysterious gospel. There was always this kind of hiddenness and whispers about Jesus and hiding his identity and not quite revealing it. There was hints here and there for sure, and Jesus definitely made nods to an illusion that he was the embodiment of God. But in John, Everything is stripped away, and it just slaps you right in the face. God is here, and I want to tell you the story about what it was like to know him. John chapter 2 goes to the story of changing water into wine and this beautiful image, the, the wine of joy that our lives can be transformed 
Pyre transformed in that way. John chapter 3, the religious leader Nicodemus in the famous John 3, 16, he has this conversation with Jesus where he doesn't understand if he's supposed to be born again, if he's supposed to go back in his mother's birth canal, because just like religious people have always erred, he takes it so literally what Jesus says that he missed the deep transcendent truth that he was talking about something birth that was way deeper than that. I want to pause on that thought for a second. One of the things that I think is so compelling about John is that the whole thing is filled with mundane things like birth and a well with water in it or bread. And there's this irony that John skillfully weaves through his Greek language as he writes down these stories that everyone always misunderstands the literal, the most obvious thing for what Jesus is actually talking about, which is way better and deeper and richer and truer. And that's one of the gifts that I think John's gospel gives all of us, because I actually think all of us, whether you consider yourself religious or not, just anthropologically, the way our minds work, we're always trying to get a simple way for our our neurobiology to have simple ones and zeros. We're kind of binary. We want literal truth. We just want someone to give us the answer. But there's things like art and museums and poetries and symphonies and scriptures and texts and constitutions that, that speak to something deeper than that. That even though we're wired that way, there's also this other part of us that brushes up against the divine There's these moments that philosophers call numinous that we ache for and feel like there must be more. There must be something behind the art or the music. And to me, John's gospel is just a perfect picture of this, how even in the mundane, there is the divine because that whole dualistic thing is blown up. God is here. I want to take a really, really nerdy tangent for a second. Um, when, when you study religions of the world, and a lot of you might be doing this now at NAU or you might have studied it 30 years ago, There's a couple of different ideas. You know what atheism is or theism or polytheism, lots of different gods or one god or no god. But there's also this idea mostly found in Eastern religions, and this is a little bit of an over-stereotype because I love what we can learn and draw from our Eastern sisters and brothers. But there's this idea of pantheism. And pantheism is the idea that all things are God. God is everything. This table, me, you, the stars... Everything is God. That's pantheism. And some critics of John might wonder if he was a little too mystical in his language, as you're going to see in just a minute. But I want to be really nerdy and tell you about this other word called panentheism. And I know you don't love big words. I hate this kind of words. But there's something deeply beautiful in this word. Panentheism is a different view of the entire universe. It's not that everything is God. It's that everything is saturated with God. Uh, Irish philosopher Peter Rollins likes to use the analogy of, he says, if there's a ship that's, that's sunk to the bottom of the ocean, there's a way in which you can say that that ship contains the ocean, which would be true because it's just saturated with the ocean, but it's a very different way in which the ocean contains the ship. And that's kind of a panentheistic view. John wrote in his gospel The things like bread and flesh and birth and wells and water and thirst are saturated with the divine. There's something deeper in them. And so when I talked earlier about how other scholars say the synoptics are like a horizontal view and John is like a vertical view, I don't think that's good enough. I think it's that John sees through the horizontal 
and sees the divine in everything. And that's what he was talking about to Nicodemus that night. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, when he breaks open this kind of first century patriarchal world and, and empowers this woman who'd had a sketchy past to go back and tell an entire village that Jesus was the Savior of the world, arguably the first church. John chapter 5, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. John chapter 7, where he says, I am the thirst. If you thirst, come to me. I'm a well that will spring up inside of you. There's this rhythm to John that's beautiful and numeric. The first half of the book is called the book of signs, and he uses seven different signs to show that he has the authority to represent what love is. Throughout the whole book, he seven different times has these I am statements, and I am to a Jewish person was the very name of God, the I am that I am, that Moses asked the name of God, and, and Jesus used that often. He said he's the bread of life, and he says that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and he says he's the I am the vine, these I am statements that tried to pull together a very different God where the focus was the fact that when you pull the mask off, Jesus was the embodiment of what divinity is. The last half of the book is the passion narrative. So the first half is these seven signs and wonders and the hour and when it's going to happen, and it, and it draws you through. And then there's these three chapters of Jesus praying for people like us in the future and praying for his best friends and praying that we all may be one, which we'll come back to in just a second. And then John takes us to the crescendo that the divine embodiment, the main point of the whole gospel, is that God would follow all the way to death on a cross and resurrection, that God co-suffers with us and is completely nonviolent and can be the way that we experience the divine. Now, I want to look at two stories really quick, really just one and then one verse. And ironically, we're going to go to John chapter 8, which if any of you are pretty nerdy at all, like a, like a four on a one to ten scale of nerdiness, you'll probably know this. But John chapter 8, the first 11 verses, actually, ironically, probably weren't written by John. They call this the pericope adulteri in Latin, which a, a pericope is a passage or a section of an ancient text, and adulteri has to do with the adulterous woman we're going about to meet here. We don't really know where this belongs in the Gospels. In, in some of the earliest texts, this section is found after John 12. Sometimes it's found in the middle of John 21. It's actually found in Luke in some of the earliest things, and some scholars believe that Luke wrote this. None of that matters because the early church, this is one of the stories in the first century that's the most attested to, and I want to read it to you because it's currently found in John, and I think it's powerful. We'll start in 7, verse 53. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Interestingly in John, especially if you compare it to Matthew, Jesus doesn't do a lot of teaching. In other words, his teaching isn't recorded. It's mostly these miracles, conversations that he has, whereas in Matthew you have these long sections of teachings. There's no parables in the book of John. There's no exorcisms in the book of John. But here we still have a crowd around him, and he's in the act of teaching when this particular thing takes place. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. That was a parenthetical note by John. 
So the situation, and by the way, I hope you've heard this story before, but if you haven't, it's to me one of the most beautiful pictures from the life of Christ. But if you have, I want you to hear it again for the first time. Try to go there in your mind and feel the human tension that was existing here. There's a woman caught in the act of cheating on her husband or or cheating with someone else's husband, which in in the sexual ethic of the day, not that much different from ours, would be one of the cultural worst things you could do. And talk about shame. This would be a shameful thing. Now, we don't know. Scholars love to think about if they had just caught her right then and dragged her maybe in just enough time to grab a sheet to cover herself. Interestingly, they quote, they try to trap Jesus by using Scripture. Did you know that's a thing that religious people do? Religious people will actually use Scripture to bring harm to people, which is hurtful to my heart. And that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. They were quoting correctly from Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, that if someone's caught in the act of adultery, the man and the woman both together should be stoned in this archaic ancient law. Now, I don't want to go on a huge tangent about the difference between ancient Near Eastern tribal anthropological laws and how that evolved in Jewish thought and Christian thought. I won't go there, but I can just tell you that's not a great way to govern people is by throwing rocks at them until they're dead. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with things about eating shellfish or or killing your teenager if they talk back to you that we all would find morally repulsive. And thankfully, the Bible pulls us forward from those narratives. And if we follow into the trap of those that John tries to keep us from falling into. And we try to take the Bible in general too literally, as Nicodemus was trying to do. We miss its depth and the real reality of what the message is about, this message of love. And these two things come face to face in the story with this woman. They've dragged this woman there, no sign of the man, misogynistic, And that was just fine with the leaders of those days because everything we can read about is they didn't view women as anything more than property, but Jesus was so different than that. He saw the full person and the equality, and he knew that they were misusing Scripture to trap him in this case. And here's what happens. It says that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled in commentaries in medieval times, early church, modern church, about what Jesus wrote. One of my very good friends here in town thinks that he did this in the moment to to buy time and take the attention away from this woman who was in shame, was being shamed by these men, and was saying, hey, just look over here on the ground to take the eyes off her. That's possible. I think there's a hint in the Greek here because it says katagrapho in the Greek. The, the word for writing in Greek is grapho, which is where we get words like graphics. That's, that's what graphics are, something we write or draw. But katagrapho is a different Greek word. And it's interesting that it's used here because kato means against. So it means, that, it means writing against or an accusation. And so from the earliest days of the church, there's a tradition that when Jesus bent down to write in the ground, it's quite possible that he was ironically writing accusations against these misogynistic men in power. That he was probably writing on the ground things that he would know about their life. Maybe even just things he knew from this situation. Abusing scripture to harm other people. Misogyny not seeing women equal with men. Who knows what katagrapho was going on there? But there's great irony, and there's irony that drips through the whole book of John. It says he bends down, he writes with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down 
and he wrote on the ground. And this is one of, I think, one of the most cinematic moments in any of the Gospels. The human wit that would be required to be to feel trapped in a situation like this. Have you ever felt trapped before by your friends or someone else or in a class and you feel like you don't know what to say and you feel the pressure? Only a certain kind of human has the ability to breathe and come up with something as brilliant and disarming as what Jesus does here. He stands up and says, fine, whoever's without sin can be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then, silence. That silence is the moment that I wish I could see in history. I love when a human has the ability not to strike back in anger, out of fear or insecurity, but from a deep place of security and love, has the ability to flip a situation with a perfect question or a perfect idea, and he calls their bluff. He says, hey, I'm fine with you turning rocks into missiles and killing somebody. Just make sure you're perfect before you do that. And then there's that moment, that wait. And then this cool detail that's recorded after the silence, which I love. It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first. How cool is that? Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, and this is more accurately translated, ma'am, ma'am, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is so good. (laughs) I I love this moment. I love this Jesus. There's a reason this is one of the most famous stories from the life of Christ. This is the reason the early church liked to remember this particular story in the first century. And there's a lot of things that I think we need to revisit, even if we are a part of this American Christianity, which is very different and evolved and often off-center from what historic early movement following of Jesus is about. First of all, I love how Jesus handles sin here. You know what I don't hear in Jesus' theology about sin here? I don't hear him saying, well, the the Bible was really clear on that, so let's make sure that we follow what these religious leaders are telling us, and let's go ahead and kill her with rocks. So he doesn't see sin in that light. He also doesn't see sin through the lens of Augustine or Calvin years later, centuries later, as this condition of total depravity that makes us worthless and unworthy of love. He sees sin as this unifying, beautiful, equal thing that all of us have. The king and the peasant alike, the religious leader and the adulterous woman, the things that pull us away from being the best version of ourselves. See, sin, I think, is one of those words that church has completely destroyed. I think we have abused this word, and we have used it and twisted it into this idea in bad theologies that we are worthless and unworthy of love, especially after the Reformation, whereas the beautiful doctrines of sin that are orthodox in Christianity are, no, we are perfectly loved. We are made good and in the image of God, and we are all called to be restored through forgiveness and that opportunity. You are not totally depraved. You are loved like the children that we birth. In the way we hold them, we're loved more than that. And yet Jesus beautifully says to her who he loves and has taken the shame away, go and sin no more. Why? Because he wants her to live a life that he would call in John chapter 10, life that is the fullest and the most abundant. To not do things that pull us away from our most vibrant selves, the things that make us come alive and live in love to be exactly what John calls us to in John 10, 10. Life that is full and abundant. There's one last verse I want to read before we come to the communion table because I think this is a mysterious 
word. Jesus is praying. It's towards the end of his life. This is John chapter 17, verse 20, and I didn't give this to Brian, so just listen. This is Jesus praying. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here he's talking about us, ultimately, echoing through time, those that believe in his message of love and forgiveness, that all that may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a strange thing. It's always been a strange thing for me since I was a child to think about Jesus praying. In years past, I've done sermon series on the Trinity and the mystery that it is theologically and what was going on. If Jesus was the eagle landing, God being human, what does it look like when God's praying to God and this strange thing? But the one thing that John makes unmistakable in his childlike, simple language is the repetitive word, one. He tells Thomas in John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Earlier in the same long soliloquy and prayer, he says, I want them all to be one as we are one. He repeats it again here, and he says, I and them, you and me, because here is the so what for what I think makes the Gospel of John so transcendent. The main picture that the eagle gives us is that God showed up, embodied in a human body. But the good news a.k.a. the gospel, is we're invited into that. We're invited into the divine union. We're allowed to have connection to that base note that undergirds all of human existence, that underground river of love, that panentheistic ocean of love that is God embodied in Christ and offered to all of us because he can forgive us of our sins. He can call us forward to a life that is full life to the absolute abundant. And what I absolutely love is the whole gospel of of John goes through the death and resurrection of Christ. There's this beautiful scene at the ending where he keeps referring to this disciple whom Jesus loved throughout the whole gospel. At the very end, it's like a twist in the story where he says, and that disciple is the one who wrote these things down. It's like at the very end, you get the secret reveal that the author is the one he kept referring to as the one whom Jesus loved. Because this person who followed around the divine living in Jesus, who says that we're offered the same connection to that deep burning love of God, the way he identified as the one whom Jesus loved. That's how he thought of himself. In fact, he never identifies himself as any other way. We don't actually know this is written by John because it never says that. We only know this was written by the one whom Jesus loved. And the one writing it is that person. Is that how you identify yourself? I have two middle school kids, and it's fun watching their friends and them develop. It's like this developmental stage in human psychology where identity comes front and center. You start to try to figure out who I am. In, in one case, a Panthers fan seems to be the main identity there. In other cases, we, we just do things to figure out who we are. What would it be like if our identity was, I'm the one whom Jesus loves? I'm the one who God loves. I'm connected into the mystery of the divine dance that is the Trinity. That is the message of the gospel of John. It's mysterious, it's deep, it sees through the vertical, it requires embodiment, it takes mundane things and makes them completely beautiful and holy, centered in the person of Christ. 
So what I want to do, I hope that sparks some questions and conversations for you as you leave today. We're going to share the communion table. And it'll be a little bit different today because we're going to have our children come up here and slap some colors all over this thing, which should be fun. And, and kids or parents, if you want to come with them, you'll just make a line. And I think Greta or somebody will be up here to have some sort of form of organized chaos. But we still have our other four stations here. And if you've never been here before, um, we celebrate an open communion table. We believe all are welcome at the table of Jesus. We believe that the... the the sacrament is a performance art. It's a physical act, just like John taught us. In fact, one of the darkest verses in the Gospel of John is John 6.66, which is kind of ironic, where it says, after Jesus was talking about how you should have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, a bunch of this crowd who was drawn to his personality was like, okay, that's weird. We're out. Because they were kind of doing the same thing Nicodemus was doing. They were like, we're not going to eat your flesh. That's super weird. But yet again, John's irony is you don't understand the deeper meaning of flesh and blood, the deeper meaning of self-sacrifice and dying to self, and the joy of the wine that is the blood of God. And we still, 2,000 years later, do this same weird thing. We go, it's super weird to get in a line and get a cracker and a gluten-free cracker and get wine and grape juice. So why do we do it? Because there's something deeper through it. There's something more than literal, not less than literal. There's something better behind it about receiving Christ into us. And today as we come to the table, I want you to think about that prayer of Jesus and think that when we take this physical mundane thing into us, we're taking Christ in us. We're becoming one as he prayed. The divine can be in us. We can be a part of that divine dance. So let's pray over those elements and then we'll have this time of kids' art and um, sacramental art. Lord, thank you so much for the book of John. I'm thankful for the moments in my life uh, where I did not feel like the one you loved. And I'm thankful for the words you told Nicodemus in the dark that night that you so loved every one of us that we could have eternal life or life overflowing, abundant life, like you say in John 10. Thank you for these words of encouragement and hope and depth. Thank you for half of a gospel committed to your passion, that you would wash feet and share your body broken for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so together today we come and we thank you, Lord, that you don't see us as worth, worthless and unlovable, Lord, but you see us as truly loved. Thank you that you are the light of the world. Thank you that you are the true vine. Thank you that you are the bread of life and the water of life. As we come to the table today, Lord, we come with a receiving posture. We pray, Lord, that as we come and take this bread and this wine, we ask you to forgive us of our sins, the things that don't make us alive in you. Thank you that you offer that forgiveness as you did that beautiful woman so long ago, and we receive that and we follow her leadership in that way. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of community and the chance to do this together. We thank you for children in their hands, in their imaginations, in their hearts. We thank you for the grace that you offer all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Commons Podcast. To further the conversation, check us out on Facebook or social media handle The Commons Flagstaff. Or you can join us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. for our service. 
and join us for dinner afterwards. Have a great week.